Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Simply put, it's a secure way for you to share your transactional data in a digital format to get a better deal. And this is the thinking behind open banking. It was never so one person or individual or government can make more money. It's so the consumer can get better deals, better terms or better interest rate or loyalty points or anything like that that can benefit you as a business, a small business or an individual. Tappelberg was attending a conference on the future of South African banking. When he was jarred to attention, a panel of senior leaders and regulators had been asked about open banking's role in that future, and they'd been unable to answer. Working at the forefront of open banking, Nick had had to educate customers before, but this had come after a full day of talks, all discussing the inescapable importance of data in the new economy. So why the disconnect? Why could everyone see the value of data, but not the role that open banking could play in leveraging that data? Welcome to How to Lend Money to Strangers with Brendan LaGrange. And indeed the last of my mini-series of South African-themed bonus episodes. So there will be an episode on Thursday as usual, but then I'll be getting on a plane back to England. And so to give myself time to get back on my feet, There will be no episode in the first week of September, but make sure you're following the show wherever you listen to podcasts, because we're really going to be hitting the ground running on the 8th. Nick Teitelberg, welcome to the show. You're the Director of Business Development for Direct ID, a company that we've featured on the show before. So it's great to be looping back and hearing what you're up to now. Before we get into that, though, and before we talk about open banking in South Africa, maybe we could warm up with just a little bit of context of what's brought you to where you are today. Thanks, Brendan. Thanks for having me today and, and allowing me to chat about a very passionate subject. So, so my background... The last 14 years, it's been um, with various credit bureaus. And prior to that, it was about 12 years in asset-based finance on the credit side. But the bureaus was probably the interesting part that I really started to specialize. And I really looked at a combination of things on the consulting side. So it was really around analytics, decision systems, and alternate data. That's really sort of where it led me to direct ID's path, a fintech that specializes in um, open banking data, which is, I mean, the entire market's looking for, you know, data is so important now, and open banking sort of speaks to that to a large extent. Nick, as we said, you're at Direct ID, and I've previously had on here James Varga, the founder of Direct ID. But for those who maybe didn't listen to that and want to finish listening to this episode before they go and find it, could you maybe explain what Direct ID is, who you are, and what niche in the market you're filling? Direct ID has been around for about 10 years. We're a fintech that essentially develops and owns open banking software. So 
just to sort of jump a couple of steps back, the FCA in the in the UK only hands out two types of licenses. One is a, a common payment platform. In other words, you do all your payments on a platform, so you don't have two banks and two apps and two sets of passwords. The other one is a common data platform where you aggregate a full 360 view of the client's data on one platform. Direct ID is that type of company. So we take the transactional data from a consumer with consent in a secure way, and we aggregate that data for various insights for selected clients. And we were the first company in the UK to actually integrate on a account aggregation platform. Like I'm sure we'll talk about today, those insights you know, vary across the board for both consumers and SMEs. But because of the richness of the data, the verification of the data, there's a lot that you can actually see underneath the hood compared to some of the other regular ways of getting data and especially traditional data where someone owns like a, a car or a property. You know, those typically are easier people to actually vet to understand. But someone that doesn't have debt like that are, we call them basically thin clients or very, it's a very difficult way to help them, you know, actually obtain credit. And that was the, the dream of James. Why he started the company was financial inclusion. It has morphed into other services as, you know, analytically and clients have asked for more insight. But really it was about financial inclusion, allowing people that couldn't qualify for credit to qualify for credit. I think last time we spoke to James Varga, and we spoke quite a lot about the UK because well, that's the market that he's in. That's the market Direct ID started in. And it's also probably the furthest ahead in terms of rollout of open banking. But today be a little bit different because we're going to talk about the potential benefits of open banking in newer markets, in developing markets like South Africa. And it stems from a conversation you and I were having the other day where you were at a conference at Gibbs, which is where I did my MBA, beyond banking, what's what's next in the South African banking industry. Day one, as I understand it, went sort of as you'd expect with people following that old line of data being the new oil. But then on day two, there was a panel discussion that you were watching and you raised a question about what they saw as the role of open banking. And it became evident that even some very senior leaders in the industry didn't quite know where open banking would fit in this new data producing, data transporting and data refining industry. And maybe open banking is not fully understood. And perhaps the breadth of its various uses isn't fully appreciated because it's often working in the background. You're sure. So, Brendan, I think the conference, I mean, was a good conference and it was with a lot of top business leaders. So it was great to hear what, what people are doing well and where they haven't been successful and it had some business in the conference that are going through a very good patch and some that are struggling. So the CEO interviews were very relevant. I think my surprise came from when it got to the open banking side of things. Some of the participants didn't get the crux of what open banking is. And the first part of the conference was talking about what financial institutions have been successful and why. And exactly as you said, the why is they've used their data so well. If you can look at that and learn from it, and using it properly, you know, you really got your step ahead. So, and you, everyone can think of some names in the head that have great data about a person, a full 360 view. So the data side was a constant theme through the conference in terms of how it's used. And if you use it properly, it can be a, very, a good differentiator. Then at the conference, you know, we could challenge the panel about, you know, how, why don't we look at open banking a bit more 
and legislate it and, and have a plan in South Africa. And I think some of the comments that came through, which did surprise me and some of the other attendees, it wasn't just myself, was comments that it, you know, it's very sort of cumbersome and costly for the banks. There's not a major benefit for the country. Fraud could be a problem. And it's mainly based around creating payment rails. So it's really just about creating like one platform to do common payments on. You know, if you talk to any CEO in the country at the moment, or anyone in business, they will know what open banking is, the theory. So, so few people know exactly what it is in practice. And that's even in some of the countries that have it legislated. So not everyone in the UK knows exactly what open banking is. So I'm not, not saying that for a moment that everyone loves it and everyone knows what it is. But I think there's a big difference between the theory and the actual practice. If it's used correctly and properly, and it's not made for everyone, I must also make that comment. But if it's used correctly and it suits your your business needs as a small business or an individual that doesn't have credit or debt or your contract worker, it is a fantastic tool. Everyone wants things quicker, simpler, faster, cheaper. So they want it at their home. They don't want to have to drive anywhere. Open banking talks to all of that. Yeah, Nick. So with that in mind, I think that open banking, like all new technologies, is prone to be misunderstood. So maybe before we get too deep into how it can help bring forward South Africa's banking industry, maybe we should just start with what is open banking? Simply put, it's, it's a secure way for you to share your transactional data in a digital format to get a better deal. So you share it with whoever. It doesn't have to be a bank. It can be a retailer. You're sharing your transactional data to get a better deal. And that can come in many formats. So that might be a better interest rate, a higher limit, um, longer terms, and that could be for business or consumer. And that's why it was brought out originally in the UK. They didn't think there was enough competition among the banks. They wanted consumers to have a, a better choice, you know, to move banks. And it was never so, you know, one person or individual or government can make more money. It's so the consumer can get better deals. So it's really about sharing your data on a secure platform. As I say, at a high level to get a better deal, whatever that deal is. Yeah, and I'll add into that that it, that benefit could just be convenience. I've used it here for rental screening, and rather than having to go to a bank and print out bank statements and get them stamped and do all that sort of stuff you used to have to do to prove your income, you just was one click, and then they did their income approval, and, and off we went. And I was very happy to save that, that, that work. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, in ESA at the moment, there's... There's over about 3 million credit applications done a month. And when we looked last looked at the numbers, most of them are still asked for at least three to six months manual payslips and uh, manual bank statements. And this open banking effectively, the first start of the benefits, I mean, there's quite a few lists of benefits. That's the first port of call that you can actually start waiving that. You can literally share that from your lounge at home. It's even cutting out the fraud aspect, you know, that you're changing PDF documents and your payslips being doctored. It cuts all of that out. But you're exactly right. The convenience part is probably the starting point, And then you move to more sort of the financial deal side. Obviously, there's a lot more of it under the hood than just here's what my bank details are saying. But, you know, that's what the first association is in people's minds, perhaps. And because of that, I think we can understand why it's natural to feel a little bit nervous. You know, our whole lives, we don't give your pin to anybody. Check over your shoulder. No one's looking at you when you're doing your internet banking. You know, don't share any of this information. And people can almost think, oh, now open banking, I'm somehow giving control of my bank account. I'm giving my banking details to somebody. But that's not really what's happening. 
maybe you can talk a bit about what that consent is and how that's different to say calling up a, a, a screenshot of your bank account. Yeah, so it's a very good point because I think that's where some of the not the negative comments, but maybe um, people are a bit adverse to it is around actually the process. So the whole process probably takes about eight to nine seconds. And I think foremost, we've got to understand that to to be granted a license and then to hold a license to access this data, there is legislation covering it and there is compliance rules and you need to qualify and you get audited for it. So the process itself doesn't, if you get granted a license, differ from company to company. And that process has been tried and tested. You know, that's been going for at least the last five years in the UK and across other countries. So you know, that's the thing that sets it apart, that it is a very formalized process, um, very safe and secure. And it's the exact same risk as if you log in onto your own webpage of your, your bank. There is minimum two-factor authentication. So what I mean by that is it could be a combination of your credentials plus an OTP, one-time password, one-time PIN, or a um, biometrics, something that, that your bank sets up on your phone. All the data received is encrypted. These are all part of the legislation to qualify for a license. So no company could sort of start waiving it and making it easier. It has to all be above board. The whole idea with the process, and that's why I think consumers sometimes, sometimes get it wrong, is that the whole passage and journey is very transparent and the power is put in the hands of the consumer. In other words, you know exactly what the specific purpose is that you're consenting. At any stage, you can cancel that consent before and after. You can withdraw it at any stage immediately. And once you've consented, you do get then a reference number that if you need to go back to it, you've got that exact specific purpose that you granted it for. So this puts the power of the data in the consumer's hands. Yeah, and we spoke to James and we were focused primarily on the UK market of open banking. But the fact is, you are now moving well beyond the United Kingdom and you're looking at providing open banking solutions in many different markets. So what is Direct ID's global presence like at the moment? Yeah, so it's one of the areas that we do differentiate ourselves, and it's something that we have built up over the last 10 years. So we, we're in over 45 countries at the moment, representing 45 countries. And what's significant about that is we've worked on obtaining various bank connections. So we've got over 13,000 bank connections over these 45 countries. And that's significant, in other words, for some of the global clients that we've signed up. So when you move to a global client and they want to use open banking, that richness of data over two, three countries, they don't necessarily have to start from scratch, you know, especially if they've partnered with a global decisioning provider, decision system provider. We can then facilitate the same relationship and um, agreement across various countries. So that's something we work very hard on. You know, so it's not just UK-based. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? 
For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. What we're trying to do this year is really try pinpoint some of the countries that are growing at a, at a faster rate for various reasons. We're looking at South Africa, Turkey, and India. We're also looking at Hong Kong. Besides the countries that we already invested in, like the UK and USA, Canada, Australia, so it's really about growing at the right pace. You know, listening to clients, making sure you understand the market, partnering with the right clients in each region. That does take time. As I say, if you do that too quickly, it can backfire. So we're really trying to be smart about our our, our expansion and our our movement. But it's also, as you mentioned got more uses than just simply replacing the three printed bank statements that you might have had to take in the past. There's a whole lot more use cases. And you mentioned that at that conference, it was maybe not clear to the industry what those use cases were. What are some of the big use cases for open banking that you've seen around the world that you maybe think are well suited to South Africa and other developing markets? Yeah, so there's quite a few, but I think the top one, especially if I look at South Africa, is probably um, financial inclusion is one. Assessing, let's say, thin clients. In other words, clients that don't have an established credit record yet. Someone very young uh, without debt yet. Someone with debt paid off, contract worker, and someone that maybe doesn't have mainstream debt, you know, like a house or a car. And that. that is a big challenge in SA. You've got a lot of people that don't have mainstream credit. So how do you assess these type of clients, because they're not all bad. They're almost medium. So you don't know if they're good or bad, and you don't want to lose these clients. So I think the one side on the consumer side, the biggest use case I've seen is on really alternate data, looking at how do I assess clients with limited data? How do I assess them better, make sure I'm not turning a good client away? And I think on the other side, in SA, it is a concern, but I've seen it a lot around the globe, is on the SME side. What we do is we take the client's data, the SME's data, and we automatically calculate cash flow, which is a very manual process, as I've seen in lots of banks around the globe. And you can start in calculating cash flow already for companies under three years old, using technology, using machine learning. Open banking, the solution allows that. And in SA, we do have a fundamental problem. A lot of the SMEs do not do full sets of financials. And that came out in COVID with the COVID relief. It was a big concern. A lot of them don't produce financials. So this, this is a way to verify cash flow in real time, in a couple of seconds. And the other part, which is very important, we're not there to replace bureaus, that we work with. You know, they they have a very important part of credit and risk also, defaults and that. But what they don't necessarily always have is the ability to pay, the affordability. We're obviously from bank statements and our cash flow calculations, we can give you a financial view, the, the affordability view of the SME. Can they actually afford it, the ability to pay? And that's some of our biggest use case successes so far is on the SME side, which if you look at the banks in SA, it's a big focus, hot topic and a growth area. But it is fairly untapped. But it is a market you have to be careful in. And there's no reason not to go over it, but you want the best data possible to assess the clients. Yeah, even if you are producing formal financial statements, there's such a lag built into those that usually you've got to get your business up and running for a while before you're big enough to worry about it. And then you get them going, and then the bank might want two years of those. And by that stage, you're looking at data that's really very old. And obviously, the world we're living in now, 
things today are very different to what they looked like six months ago. Yeah, you make a good point there, Brendan. As I say, it's that lag effect with, with dates. I mean, we've seen listed companies, you know, under COVID conditions, you know, going under within a, within a month or going into business rescue. That's one thing that taught us, you know, no one is safe. You know, if I look at all the clients, they're all assessing the entire debtors book now, where sort of five years ago, you only maybe looked at the ones that weren't listed or that weren't large. Now everyone gets assessed. So open banking data, it's real time data, exactly as you said, there's no sort of lag effect. And with interest rates going up now, things can change very quickly for business or for individual. You know, we even build in sort of early warning models for IFRS purposes from this data because you can immediately see, you know, people dipping into the overdraft. You can see taking on extra debt. You can see some missed payments. You can see dipping into their bond. These things you can pick up straight away with transactional bank data. You know, you don't want to act when you hear the person's gone into business rescue or liquidation or sequestration. That's generally too late. That's after the fact. I must give you a quick example, if I can, about, I mean, the, the, the way it's gone, I mean, it's, it's jumping 20 steps ahead, but, you know, the guys in Europe that have open banking, in cases now, they're actually looking at if you purchase like a ski pass and they pick that up on your bank statements, they're pushing out short-term insurance to you. And you've got the option to take it out and they push out a very attractive offer while you're on the slopes. It's that, it's those real-time offers. I mean, that's the end game. You can see someone pays for school fees every year, push out an overdraft to them, push out an offer. So it's it's also giving that client that bespoke service that everyone wants. We all love that when it's, it's addressed to me and my needs. Now, in terms of actual demand of people actually using open banking, what numbers are you seeing? How much real demand is there for open banking through these different technologies it enables? I mean, we're going to talk about SA today, but I mean, UK, just to give you an example, it's only going for five years. There's billion transactions a month and under open banking at the end of June. So it's a billion transactions per month. And there's 6 million users. So that's a combination of SMEs and consumers. And that's over a five-year period. You know, so that's growing at probably 25, 35% year on year. And if we dig down to SA, there's probably about 4.9 million transactions over the last two months, if we look at our partners that we use, that's SME and individuals. So it's alive and kicking. It's just not called open banking at this stage, maybe by all the banks, but it is happening. And the numbers are growing and the banks are now looking to open up the APIs. They have seen value in it. You know, what came out on the conference was also very clear. The banks are open to talk to, to fintechs and partners if there is a, a common benefit. As long as those value propositions are clear and attractive, the banks are willing to talk. And we are obviously engaging with some of the banks around those value propositions. But it's what we've alluded to today in terms of that we can just make the life easier for their clients. And again, that just brings more market share using technology and using machine learning. Clients then would start, you know, without pushing out big marketing, will start talking and say, look, to deal with this bank on the business side, it's just so easy, you know. Within 10 seconds, I've shared everything. I'll get answer in a day. That's the type of thing we're talking on the SME side, which traditionally hasn't always been the case. Traditionally on SME, it is weeks of going back and forth. Yeah, and I actually just recorded a, an episode this morning that's going out after yours, um, sort of stealing one of the insights from there. But if we can reduce these costs that are involved, so it's very expensive to do an SME loan when you're doing all these ratios, all these manual processes, both for the borrower and for the, the lender. If we can reduce those costs and we can make more loans profitable, 
So it allows the bank to lend to smaller SMEs, to lend to SMEs earlier on. So even just the operational benefits is also a way to improve access to finance. You know, financial inclusion goes as far as SMEs also, you know, when you're talking about financial inclusion, not just consumers. You know, all the countries that did well after COVID, that recovered the quickest, they put in their grants and their funds and their relief into the SMEs. That was their focus. And the ones that got and distributed that money as quickly as possible, you know, were on the forefront. You know, they've got back on track as quickly as possible. We, we need to do that. You know, that financial, I think, an essay to get the SMEs off the ground is crucial. And the banks have recognized that. So it's, it's, it, is, it is out there. The guys know that. It's just how do you make that process more automated? How do you ma- use more technology, work smarter? That hasn't necessarily transferred, you know, from the consumer side, which was always sort of, because of the economies of scale, the consumer side was always the battleground. Now it's sort of SMEs. And when I speak to data scientists, you know, at the companies, you know, even when I was at the credit bureau, they constantly asked, I just want more alternate data. The guys are hungry for data. You know, if you speak to the actuaries at insurance companies, they just want more data. The more data they get, the better the models are, the more market share, the better growth. You know, everything just works because you can trust what you're putting out there. You can make confident calls in. So it's about just getting your hands on more data that you can trust. And if people listening are interested in learning more about open banking and about what Direct ID can do for them in that space, where should they go to look first to learn more about your organization or maybe to start a conversation? Yeah, so I mean, I'm happy to engage with anyone you know, individually over, over LinkedIn. I have got you know guys reaching out to me and wanting to chat and go down into some of the use cases because I think that's the best way. And also the other advantage is it is all web services, all via an API, so there is no coding. We can set up clients within four or five days, so it's not like a massive project. We're on POCs with a lot of clients at the moment. We're happy to prove value first before we talk massive commitment or long-term contracts. Um, they're welcome to go to the Direct ID website. And then also, you know, Google Open Banking. This year alone, by the end of the year, 108 countries will implement open banking. That's a big number. We should be in that number. You know, I don't know why we're not in that number. You know, we, we have such good uh, banking set up. Our central bank is well run. We should be there. I think that has started to a large extent, but we definitely, you know, out of those 108 countries, South Africa should be there. We can teach the rest of the world a couple of things. And open banking, as I say, financial inclusion is a concern for every company I talk to. And it can just speed up that process. Yeah, I'm a big fan of open banking. I wish you the best of luck in getting it up and running in South Africa. As you said, I think there's a lot of things about the market there that make it perfectly suited for open banking. So, yeah, I will look forward to your growth in that space. Thank you, Brendan. Yeah, thanks for having me today and allowing me to talk a bit about what open banking is and just hopefully, you know, squash some of the sort of myths and rumors around it because, you know, all the top executives know what open banking, but the practice is very different. And again, I say it's not there for everyone that you have to use it. It was always offered as an option. And that's what clients want. They want options. Clients say, give me options. If I want to go faster, give me an option to go faster. If you don't want it and you, you don't feel you need it, there's another option to go a bit slow and to go another method. It's still an option, but it's just those people that are using it are seeing the benefits and there's multiple benefits. So as I say, it's just to hopefully squash some of the rumors and 
gives people a lot more confidence in the whole process. Yeah, indeed. I mean, I've grown up in the industry and when I first heard about open banking, wasn't sure what it was. You know, we, we first had screen scraping of bank statements and it was sort of, okay, so just like that, it's just showing you what my bank statement is. And it was only yeah, as I got closer into it that I started to see all the, the sense it would make in the modeling space in terms of the risk control, in terms of product design. You're not going to just share your, your banking details if there's nothing in it for you. So, and that's the open banking proposition. You share it to benefit in some way, as I said in the start, to get a better deal. It's very important that the, you know, people understand you would share it to get something for it in, in return. And you know the big thing is always to get a, a customer 360 view what the client looks like from a positive and a negative point of view. In other words, what they're investing and saving and what are, are they borrowing? That is the pinnacle of the position to be in. And from the categorization, which we apply to the bank statements, where you spend your money, in other words, is it on entertainment? Is it on petrol? Um, is it on traveling? And then how you spend your money, the classification, that is in terms of do you pay by credit card, do you pay by cash, EFT, and that's such rich data and insight to manage a person proactively view because you can just manage the person's needs, their, their wealth needs, their debt needs, whatever, so much better knowing what their next move is. And open banking speaks to that and sort of speeds up that process. But it's also the first step in helping them budget correctly. So, you know, that financial inclusion loop comes back again that if I share with you that you only save this per month in a friendly, user-friendly way, but you spend this much in entertainment that you can then start pushing back to the client and helping them manage their money better. It's a win-win-win for everyone involved. So yeah, I encourage people to reach out to you at Direct ID. I'll put those links in the show notes. And yeah, thank you again. Thanks, Brendan. Thank you. And thank you all for listening. If you enjoyed that, please do rate and review on your preferred podcast platform and share widely, including on LinkedIn. And while you're there, send me a connection request. The show is written and recorded by myself, Brendan LaGrange, in Brighton, England. Show music is by I Am Wake, and you can find full written transcripts, show notes, and more content at www.howtolendmoneytostrangers.show. And I'll see you again next Thursday. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.